0: Everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Piet. Once again, and always, we are joined by our co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR?
1: Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, things have been good. Thank you. I went to see Miriam Margulies last week. Um, so Professor Sprout, for those Harry Potter fans, uh, she did a tour um, where she was promoting her books. I went to see her live. She was hilarious. She said the C word in the first huh. couple of minutes. And I'm not talking about Christmas. Um, yeah, she was outrageous, but hilarious and She's just so incredible. For 82 years old, she Is that I just, what age she I'm is? That, yeah, yeah. Wow, I have no idea.
0: Wow. I know. She is incredible. The energy she's got. I,
1: exactly. I hope I'm that feisty when I'm 82. Mm. I think, yeah, she's just she's got a brilliant attitude towards life. Um and yeah, she's she's just amazing. So that was a really good night. Um, what else have I been up to? Oh, I've got two new tattoos. Um, I was just going to get one, but then I get obsessed with things and I went in, got one done, and then I was like, oh, whilst I'm here, can I just get another one? So I did. Um, So, yeah, I've got this new dragon on my forearm and then this stack of books with pages that then get turned into birds that go from my shoulder up through my neck behind my ear. So they're healing All in one sitting. No, no, no. Separated by day, apart.
0: So. No, I was going to say these these don't sound like. Oh, while you're there, could you just uh, draw us a little cat?
1: Yeah. Th- no, I I did book for the next day. Yeah. The I, painted I lady. do do things by half. Yeah, exactly. I, just adding to my collection. It's number twelve. Have you a theme?
0: Now. Would you say it always have a theme? Are they linked?
1: Not really. They're just things I like.
0: No, I like I, I like things, but. Can you not know, just look at a picture of your phone and maybe carry around like some Polaroids and just look at them?
1: No, I, I, I love tattoos. I've I've loved them since I was a young teen. And as soon as I turned old enough, as soon as I turned 18, I got my first tattoo and that was it. I've never looked back. Um, I
0: think it's more counter, yeah. counter-cultural to not have a tattoo these days. Everyone, Every, every yeah. person I know under 30, even my mother's got a tattoo, and yeah, my it, under it is not Surprisingly, my mother isn't younger <laughs> than me. Be I mean, I'd be story. quite
1: concerned if she was. That that would be odd. It'd be impossible. But, um Well, I yeah. don't no,
0: actually actually yeah. I lie. There is no. one way that could be correct. So that could be a riddle. My mother is thirty, I am forty. Tell me the tale that ended up naughty, and it could be a naughty tale of murder. My mum died at thirty, and that's why she's younger than me.
1: Oh, I was going to say step parent or something like that. Ah, yes, it could do that as well. Um, yeah, could you be? Yeah, I, I didn't go straight could to you, murder.
0: Could you be adopted? <laughs> could you? Could I? Could I be adopted at forty?
1: I'm not sure. So I think in the states they have this thing where you can do that. You can adopt an adult. Would you adopt me? Would
0: you adopt me if you saw me up for adoption? Would you take me in you'd
1: be a, i don't think i could vince you'd be a nightmare <laughs> be unruly.
0: i'd be be unruly I, could, I? I
1: couldn't cope i couldn't cope so
0: I think It'd be long term uh, care for me now, i get these tattoos on your uh twitter usually when we discuss a new tattoo we can signpost listeners over to your twitter feed to take a look and they're public are you putting these out there for to see or are they uh for your eyes only
1: uh, they're not on Twitter actually. I haven't used Twitter that much recently. I um, think Twitter's
0: dying out in the social work community. It is. The, so- the social work so. Twitter sphere is really really dropped off a cliff. It used to be really good. I used to love social work Twitter, but I think a lot of moderate people, a lot of easygoing people have been turned off Twitter because of a few loud and polarizing voices who are quite combative and because the social work Twitter community is relatively small, um, a lot of people, rightly so, just can't be chewed with the hassle because it's. There used to be so many decent people on there, like saying lots of different things, like lots of resources. I think the discourse tends to have moved towards um, maybe more LinkedIn and Facebook groups now rather than Twitter. That's what I see anyway. I, I haven't used my social work Twitter since April, May, about five months now. It seems to have died off.
1: Yeah, it is. It's lost its spark. Um, so no, they're not on Twitter. They're on Facebook, but um, of course, Let's I us not go, go there. Into that. Let's, Let's not, not go there. 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 That's Let's an argument there. for another day. Um, anyway, changing changing the subject and moving swiftly on. How are you doing? I'm what, what's Paulie. Up with
0: you? I you am are... Paulie. So I'm not sure, listeners, if you can tell my my uh, uh, voice that is even more monotone than usual. i I've got the man flu. Um not well at all. I, I haven't helped myself or till. Um, I wasn't feeling well yesterday, but I still went to the football. Newcastle United were playing uh, Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund at home. That's the reason why we're recording a day late. I'm just going to be honest with you, this is, I'm not going to say it's a technical problem. With this podcast going out a day late, because I went to the football on our usual recording night, because uh, Newcastle is in the Champions League for the first time in 20 years. And I went and it rained all night and I got soaking wet and I came back and like literally the last thing you want to be doing when you are poorly is getting wet through so um, yeah I spent most of the day in bed but I've dragged myself out for the sake of entertaining the social work world so uh, apologies listeners for uh, if I am a little bit uh, more sedate than usual but uh, I'm sure you can forgive me because you know we're making the best of this uh, poorly situation I'm stocked up Oh, no, I, don't, I don't like medicine, I don't take medicine, so I've had my usual vitamin tablets, I've had uh, plenty of orange juice, I've had ice cream, I've had soup, I've had a red hot curry, and when we get finished tonight, I'm off for a bath and some Epsom salts.
1: I appreciate your dedication for coming on today, even though you've got man flu. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah.
0: So, this week's topic, guys, um, it's a difficult one. Uh it's something that you and I, Tilly, have skirted around on many occasions. You know, the impact that being a social worker has on you. We quite often talk about secondary trauma, also known as vicarious trauma. We regularly talk about the sickness rate in social work, the high vacancy rate. There was an article that I just wrote this evening, which... um is out on the website on mysocialworknews.com which discusses the fact that our vacancy rate is 20%. It actually touches upon three cases of social workers who took their own lives. Uh, All of those um, cases citing workplace pressures as a reason that drove those three women towards suicide. And quite often we talk about the, the impact of what social work has upon us as individuals. It is not a job that is easily left at the door when we come home from work. Is that fair to say, Tilly?
1: Yeah, definitely. It stays with you um, and pops up normally in the middle of the night when you're least expecting it.
0: And it's not only the things that we experience, but I think it's fair to say that it's also the things we do as well. Because in the line of our work, Tilly, we are not just passive observers of what goes on around us. We At times, do we not actually have to make decisions that whilst we certainly believe them to be in the individual's best interest, either the individual themselves or, in my case, more often than not, their children, and we are empowered by the state to make such decisions and choices, those are very often things that the people that we are working with do not want to happen. And objectively, whilst we believe it is in their best interests, many people rightly have the ability to say, well, that's not what I want. It's not in my best interests. You are, in fact, ruining my life in the pursuit of making my life better. Again, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, it is. It's an uncomfortable position for all involved in, um, when you're not in agreement with what's best for someone.
0: So the reason we're going to discuss this topic in particular is because, um, As long-time listeners to the podcast will know, every Friday over at mysocialwacknews.com, I answer a supervision question. If any of you guys want to do that, just head over to any of our social media channels, drop us a message. They're all anonymous. Um, I change people's names. I change details. If there's any revealing details, you can do that yourself or you can just leave it up to me. But all our supervision columns are are anonymous. And what I do is I simply provide answers and advice and guidance to your uh, dilemmas. And this last week, um, a lady called Polly, not her real name, got in touch and said, Dear Vince, how do you cope emotionally after removing a baby? I've removed lots in my time and it never gets easier, but yesterday was especially dreadful. I'm not going to read over my response because it's about 600 words long. It would just be me, you know, giving a bit of a monologue, but um, do go over and check out that on my socialworknews.com. And it reminded me of another article by um, a good friend of ours, Millie Glass. Um, Millie wrote an article back in March last year, so a year and a half ago, and it was removing a child always breaks my heart no matter how many times I have to do it. And this article was incredibly popular. It's had close to a hundred thousand reads in total. And it, it goes into quite, quite heart rending detail about the impact um, of removing a child from a parent's care. And she ends with this paragraph, which is, social workers are not heartless. Thanks or no thanks to the connections we cultivate in our profession, we find ourselves after the decisions are made, party not to proceedings, but to the heartache of those we support. Regardless of how much solace we take and the knowledge that our interventions keep those we work with safe from harm, We are bound to carry out functions that would ultimately cause suffering in order to establish safety. And these two things set against each other in such a jarring way. Taking a child away from their parent will always break my heart, no matter how many times I am called upon to do it. And I think that particular line really, really resonates with me. And it's, we are bound to carry out functions that would ultimately cause suffering in order to establish safety. And I was like, wow, how true is that, Tilly? We are bound to carry out actions that will cause suffering in order to look for safety. Because that's what we do, don't we? We balance out the risk of short-term suffering uh, because I always say to my clients in the social work, look, we have a balance here between what will make people happy and what will make people safe. Obviously, the ideal situation is making people happy and safe. That's the goal. But sometimes, if we're faced with competing demands, we have to go with the, the cause of safety. So, um, what's your take on both of those pieces, Tilly, and the, uh, the sort of messages they evoke for you?
1: I mean, Millie's column was one of my favourite all-time favourite columns, certainly that she's done, and actually, and. In out of many of the columns that we've published, it's it's a beautiful piece, um, and it resonates with us all. Um, thinking back to my child protection days, I've had to remove many children, um, sometimes slightly older children that were came willingly, I suppose, for want mm. of a better word. Oh, I remember one child that was begging to be taken away because he was so frightened, um, and that will always stick with me. Um, but equally, I remember having to, to take away children that really didn't want to go or parents oh, yeah. that really, really didn't want them to go either. And it, it, you are seeing the rawest of human emotions. Um, it's the worst day of people's lives. But, and you, in some ways, are the catalyst for that. You've not caused it because it's it's you're doing it for a reason. You're doing it to protect that child. But you are the catalyst that starts off these proceedings um although it's never a a solitary decision that you make you're either doing it with with police and, and they're using their powers or you're doing it through the court systems but it's still you as a social worker who are gathering evidence and providing that rationale for that intervention and then in adult services it's it's similar. It it, mm. it really is very similar. Um, whether you're detaining someone, um, whether you're, you're taking someone out of their home and putting them into a care home or a place of safety, or whether you're going in to keep someone in hospital or a care home against their will, you're taking away someone's choice. And that should always sit uncomfortably with you. Um, it should never be an easy thing to do it is the ultimate in in state power taking away someone's choices and liberties and freedoms and i think it's important that we remember that it it, it should be uncomfortable and and as you mentioned in your article if it's ever comfortable and, and easy then perhaps that's time to call it a day because it yeah. really shouldn't be we we're, we're interfering in in someone's fundamental human rights for the right reasons but Equally, it's, a, it's an oppressive act to take someone and put them somewhere where they might not want to be.
0: I remember the first time I was ever involved with removing children from the parents' care. It was close to 12 years ago now. It was when I was a student on, uh, on placement. I was sent out to shadow a social worker. Um, she didn't drive but I did so by shadow tell you I essentially used to be a taxi driver and it was good it was good because <laughs> nice. uh, yeah but it was good because um, you may recall sometimes as a student people don't always want to take you at times particularly if it's tricky stuff and I get, I get it because it if you're faced with a real big dilemma and a very difficult day in social work sometimes you don't really want a student there to protect the student but also to protect yourself and your clients too that that can be the case can't it
1: yeah there's some things that you just don't aren't appropriate to observe and they should exactly. just be a one to one interaction that's a balance that anyone that's supporting students has to make
0: but by virtue of being a car driver and others in the office who were fully qualified social workers, not, I got to go out on some of those visits, but perhaps I didn't. I essentially, Tilly, I got to go on the restricted book section at times when I shouldn't have been allowed.
1: <laughs> that that sneaky insight. I love it. I was.
0: Okay. I was. Um, but be careful what you wish for. So mm. I was asked to go out a social worker. I'm not obviously, even though it was a long time ago, I'm not going to share any details that are revealing about where I was or where I was, you know, working at the time on the names of anybody involved whatsoever. I'm going to keep it as vague as possible, obviously, in, in accordance with our codes of conduct and, you know, data protection. And of course, you know, the moral rights of those that I was working with at the time and the children that were involved in this matter. But I went out and uh, I was told that, you know, these children are going to be removed due to poor home conditions. The uh, The term that was used was hoarding. And we went into this family home, and I was a student, Tilly. I wasn't qualified. I had no real basis or rationale to be calling out or challenging anybody. I didn't know what was good social work practice and what was bad. I was still wet behind the ears and incredibly green. I was just there learning the trade, just sitting back and watching it all be. We arrived at this family home, and my first impression was, oh, this can't be the right family home. Yeah, there's a bit of clutter, but there's two children in this family home, surely this is the norm. Uh, but apparently it wasn't the norm. And, um, yeah, these parents were told, you know, we've got foster placements lined up for the children, and you, you, you're you going to accept Section 20. And it was essentially a fait accompli. And I just remember sitting back and thinking, this doesn't seem right, this does not seem right. But I didn't know, I didn't know the 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 full understanding of section twenty and the legalities mm. regarding child removal and you know you know the fact that parents have to be fully informed, and yes, they can sign section 20 consent, but you can't essentially collude parents into doing that. I'm not saying the social worker did this, but in my naivety at the time, it appeared that may have been doing that, it certainly didn't seem right, and the home conditions didn't seem that bad whatsoever. But I just sort of went along with it, really. I mean, what else could I do? I was a student. And, you know, we, we, we got these children, these two children, and parents were crying and hugging them goodbye. And parents were kind of, they weren't really upset. Well, they weren't really angry, should I say. They were incredibly upset, but they weren't really angry. They just were sort of believed that this had to happen. And well, okay, you know, the home conditions aren't good, and we were told this should have been better. We put the children in the car. And we took them to um, the foster carers, and the children were crying. It was an incredibly strong attachment with the parents. Incredibly strong bond. You know, the children did not want to go. There was, there was no sign I could see of the children being maltreated or any sort of you know, malnourishment or any hazard or harm. They were dressed relatively well. There was no marks on them. and yeah, the home conditions weren't great, but you know, certainly certainly nowhere near as bad as the neglectful home conditions I grew up in. And I lived with my father for the entirety of my life. And we didn't have any social work involvement. And, and certainly, you know, better than many of my friends' homes, and many of the homes of my friends now. And it didn't seem that bad at all. Certainly, you know. I've worked with many, many, a hundred of family probably since then, whose home conditions have been similar, if not worse, and children remained there. But as I say, it wasn't my decision to make. I was there. It was. Uh, I dropped these children off at the foster care. is very, very distressing. And that night, I was due to go and uh, watch a musical, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and um, with uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, who was later to become my wife, and. We went for something to eat beforehand and I just couldn't eat. And I'm a good eater, Tilly. You know what I mean, I've always been able to eat. I've never struggled with eating, but we went to a restaurant near the theatre and I just couldn't eat. I just couldn't eat at all. It was just sitting so badly with me. I managed to eat maybe about a quarter of my burger, but I just didn't have the stomach for it. And then managed to go along and watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I love it. It was the first time I'd seen it live and I love Rocky Horror. And, you know, it should have been... Well, it was something I was greatly looking forward to, but... The entire time it was just like, it was like I was watching it, but from behind a sort of translucent screen, really, all the colour had gone and I couldn't hear the music clearly. I was just thinking about what I'd gone through, what I'd been on the fringes of, you know, from the parents and children's perspective, I was part of that, I was the one that drove the car, I could easily say when I was on the fringes of that, but I wasn't. To the parents and the children, the ones that would remember that for the rest of their lives. I, I wasn't, I was an active participant. I was the one that drove those children away. It was me that did that. And I went home that night and I lay in bed all night just thinking about what I'd been party to and what I'd done. You know, I'd driven those children away from the parents on grounds that I couldn't establish and that I had no justification for myself. I was just part of that observing as a student and it was probably the only time where i'd really thought is social work for me is this really for me because if that if that is what i have to do i'm not sure how could anyone do that it just it just seemed to be draconian it seemed to be immoral you know separating parents from their children and in a situation like that, and look, there may have very well have been justification. I'm not here to criticise the social worker for something that happened 12 years ago. I didn't know. I didn't know. I was there to observe, but from the limited observation I had, given what was the basis of the reason for that removal, and while I was told no more, I was actually saw myself. It just didn't seem mistaken. But that, that was it. I never, I never heard anything from that case again. I had nothing more to do with it, and that was it. But it sticks with me for life. It really has stuck with me for life. And thankfully, throughout my career, there haven't been, I haven't, I haven't removed a lot of children from parents' care. And I'm not saying I'm a special social worker and doing this. I'm certainly saying I'm not. But I I do believe that I have an ability that I haven't seen in too many other people's to really, really, really do everything you can to keep families together. I never give up. I never give up on families. Look, sometimes assessments have to be negative, but I always look for the good, and it always really is a a very, very last case scenario. And I've got to be blunt, Tilly. I do have to be blunt here, and I'm sorry if it offends some of our listeners. I don't always see that in every social worker. I I sadly see far too many social workers who cannot manage risk effectively and through an inability to manage risk ineffectively. Have an inability not to manage risk effectively, should I say, they will sometimes jump the good and look to removal because many people in social work think um the hardest part of social work is when children are in care and court proceedings, because that's the sharp end. It's not, it really isn't listeners. The hardest part of social work is Working with families on child protection plans and in my line of work, working with families when they're under PLO, public law outline, pre-proceedings, the most valuable and effective work in social work comes when you are working with the families who are on the cusp of having their children removed because that's where you have to do the daily work. That's where you have to turn things around and help them keep it together. Once children are in care proceedings, it's relatively safe and sanitised. You know, you've got children in foster care, you know, when your visits are going to be. You've got the oversight of the family courts. You've got a 26-week time scale, You've got court orders telling you what you have to do, when you have to do it, and deadlines. You've got parenting assessments in place. Parents have got supervised contact. You've got a plan. That's very finite. It's very clear. It's very linear. Yes, it can be stressful in terms of court paperwork and so on, but it's regimented. It's not chaotic the chaos and the skill and the finesse of social work comes in keeping families together. And that is something that I think I've always been quite good at. And maybe Tilly, maybe it was that early experience where I saw a social worker again, just in my opinion, I may have got this totally wrong. I was there from a very, very limited insight as a very green and naive student social worker. But I think that experience perhaps showed me that you have to have Bloody good grounds if you're going to step into a family's life and say that you cannot care for your own children. You have to have better grounds than having a gut feeling or having an inkling or being worried or thinking it might be easier to manage. You better have a very, very good objective evidence base for that. Otherwise, how do you sleep with yourself? How do you live with yourself after you've done something like that?
1: Yeah, that's a a powerful tell that you've just shared with us. So thank you for sharing it. I mean, it's the Section 20... Issues. I mean, for our external um, people outside of the the UK, this was a. I suppose it, it got blown apart probably what ten years ago, maybe a bit. It was. It was probably. Yeah.
0: It was probably a couple of years after that. So its use was what I'm describing. There was kind of how it was being used. It was basically being misused by social workers, and then the family courts came down on it. But yeah, if you want to explain that, Tilly, from your legal position, you can offer us an advantage. Well, I
1: don't don't have much of a knowledge about it because it's not my area of expertise at all. But prior to this being exposed, social workers used to say to families you've got to sign this paperwork or we'll take you to court and it will be a really horrible proceedings. Um, So if you sign this paperwork and allow us to take your children into foster care, you'll save us having to go through court, um, Mm. which is completely unlawful and morally and ethically and, and wrong in so many levels. But that was kind of the standard accepted practice at the time. And then when it got exposed and, and people had to change and, you do have to go through the rigorous court process because it's such a big infringement on someone's rights. You need to have that oversight from an independent judicial system. Um, I know the courts aren't perfect, but they are the best place to look at objective evidence that where both parties can be represented legally and have all of the right advice and and the evidence is gathered objectively, and you're not working off of things like gut feelings or or hunches that something's amiss. It's actually got to be proven and, and evidenced in a in a rational way. So I'm glad that's hopefully no longer the case. I mean, you might be able to tell me differently. You're you're still in it, but I'm hoping that that section twenty is used a lot more appropriately now.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. You know, um, it's been explained a lot better. And it was, it was, you know, probably naivety, um, you know, the way it was being used. I'm certainly, I'm certainly not saying that social workers were intentionally misusing it. Um, but in the pressure and stress of a uh, cutthroat and fast-paced social work profession, um it was cutting corners, but ultimately these, these are people's lives, and if anybody was coming into my family home trying to take my children from me, I wouldn't want corners to be cut. Let's talk about the things we both have to do, Tilly, obviously in your line of work, depriving people of the liberty, um, you know, looking at decisions regarding capacity and so on, in my line of work, similar tales to what I've just shared there. Were you prepared for these things before you had to do them did university education or your placement experience prepared you for the things you would have to do as a social worker
1: placement did but university didn't um so I was really lucky in my third year placement to be in a forensic mental health team Mm. Um, so I was working with adults with significant mental health needs who were detained in secure hospitals that also had committed serious violent and sexual offenses Um, and that gave me a real insight into I suppose, uh, deprivation of liberty and the use of the Mental Health Act to control others and those around them. Some of these people had been convicted and and had been sentenced. Some of them had been in prison and then moved into hospital when they became unwell, but other people hadn't actually been convicted as such because they they couldn't um, due to their mental health problems or or the lack of capacity in that respect. But seeing some of the practices that went on in placement, I can just, I remember one incident with a, a man that was in such acute psychosis. He thought that um, the that, that aliens were eating out his, his insides and he was oh in such God. acute distress. Oh um, my God. It's and then, just to hear. Jeez. Yeah. He, he was in such acute distress and then watching him be restrained by six nurses, uh, just to try and and then rapid tranquilization um, to try and calm him down. Um, Those sorts of things, witnessing those as a student, that did prepare me in some respects. It gave me a a good insight into some of those decisions that I would be involved in making around liberty and rights and, and freedoms. But I always start, so so I do a lot of training with social workers and with our allied professionals as well around deprivation of liberty. And one of the things that I often start with when I do this training is just getting the attendees to imagine that they're, for some reason, they, they've had an accident and they end up in hospital and then they, before they know it, they end up in a care home against their wishes, and they never get to see their own home again. They never get to see their their belongings, or they don't get any choice about where they are. They're locked up. They feel like a prisoner. Um, they haven't, but they haven't committed a crime. And I always try and encourage people to just put themselves into that position, because therefore the. Grace of God is any of us. Um, mm. Any of us could could have an accident, suffer a brain injury, or stroke, or, or anything like that, and suddenly could find ourselves in a care setting where we might not want to be. And I think it's very easy to sit back. Certainly, when we're looking at things like hospital discharges for people, and say, "Well, care home or, or placement is the only option for someone," and just imagining. How you would feel if you never got to go back and see your home again, never got to go back and collect your possessions, never had that ounce of freedom again and the rest of your life is dictated to you by those around you. I think that's that's a powerful place to try and put yourself into and and, and it should feel really uncomfortable um because those are the decisions that we're making in adult services every single day and and yes we're not removing children but we're often removing adults from places where where they've they've lived their whole lives and they we're removing separating people from their husbands wives partners um sometimes against their wishes separating them we can restrict contact we can restrict people from having sex with one another. We can restrict them from speaking to their loved ones. All of these incredibly intrusive things are within our powers, uh, obviously within the law and, and under certain grounds and when it's deemed necessary and proportionate, but, but we do have those powers of social work and it, it's scary. And, and no, university never prepared me for that. I think we always come into social work wanting to help people and do what's right and and keep people safe. But actually, going back to what Millie Glass said in her article, sometimes people have to suffer to be safe and getting that balance right and and working through that ethical dilemma on the front line on a day-to-day basis is exhausting, harrowing, draining, traumatic for us, but for also the people that we're supporting.
0: Do you think the toll it takes on us is recognized? You know, do you have you ever had a manager say to you, Oh, take tomorrow off? You know, you've had a hell of a day today. You've just had to do that removal, take a couple of days off to recover.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I've been really lucky. Um and I've certainly done that with my staff or or I've had people do it with for me. Um yeah, take some time back that was horrendous, making sure that you've got a debrief in place. I've had, I've rung my manager from my car after I've had to do something, making a horrible decision for someone or or remove someone from their home Mm. and been in tears and just needed that, that debrief session. And luckily I've had managers or colleagues that, that have given me that time and space to do that. And I would certainly do that for any of my team. Um, but I know that, that there's many social workers out there that don't have that support. Um, I think
0: you're very lucky. I, I, I think you're yeah. very lucky. That it's a surprise that you've even said that I think, to be blunt, I think the mentality is mostly suckered up buttercup.
1: That's horrendous to hear. I genuinely
0: do. I believe that. Uh, that but yeah. I, I, you know, I may have this wrong listeners. Do let me know if I have got this wrong, but... I'm in a very valued position given up in podcasting and blogging about social work for eight and a half years. I've spoken to thousands of people all over the world about issues such as this. And what you've described there, Tilly, the flexibility to, you know, essentially step outside of your contract and out of know, your contract hours and say, I'm not going to come in. I don't think many people have that ability. Our our stretched workforces that currently have one in five positions vacant and currently have social workers needing to work at least 10 hours a week unpaid overtime to keep the system going, where we have far too many cases and far too many members of staff to handle that work, the capacity simply isn't there for a social worker to recover. Now, I'm certainly not saying it shouldn't be. It should be. Because it's a false economy. If we keep milking social workers until they're dry, then people just burn out. And that's why we have, on average, seven years in the profession before people leave forever. What you're describing should happen, but maybe I'm being pessimistic here, Tilly, but I don't think it does. I think you're in a very, very valuable position indeed. I may have that wrong. I'm sure our listeners will tell us if I do, but it's not my understanding at all that culture you're describing is the correct one, but I do not think it is ubiquitous. I think it is very rare indeed.
1: Yeah, that's, it's scary to think that other people might not have that or, or don't have that. Um, Cause it's just, it's so essential. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's down to then managers and colleagues demanding that for their staff. I, I would make sure that if if one of my team members had been out on a really harrowing visit and they needed some time to just debrief and and then take some time back for themselves I would make sure that that happened because I would value my staff more than anything else and if there's managers out there that don't do that then I think that's a wake-up call you need to you need Mm -hmm. to look after your, your staff because if you don't They're going to go off sick. They're going to become stressed. That you're you're destroying their lives, their mental health and well-being. They're not going to be able to carry on working. Not only are you creating more problems for your your team because then they'll have to cover duty cases, or if someone's off sick, they they have to share the load between even fewer numbers. But just from a human being perspective, just care about the the people that you're working with and know that we've all been there I mean you don't become a manager unless you've done the job yourself you you know how it feels so give the kindness that you would want for yourself
0: so how do you cope with these things tilly let's end on this one how do you as a person you go through these things you have to do these things how do you live with yourself
1: because I make sure that Whatever actions I take, I'm doing the least worst thing. Um, even if all of the options are rubbish and really distressing to make, you're trying to do the least harm possible and you're balancing people's rights and freedoms. You're, you you keep every decision grounded in that human rights-based approach and you hold dear that people should have autonomy to make their own decisions and any interventions that you take should be the less restrictive as possible on people's rights and freedoms and if you can ensure that you're implying that to every decision you make you won't go far wrong and although it can be harrowing to do you know that you've done the right thing and you can sleep easier at night knowing that you've done your absolute best
0: and someone has to do it
1: exactly yeah. You, the world who? needs social workers. And if you can do it compassionately, with empathy, with as much um, as much analysis and, and evidence base as, as possible, and that you know that you've done your absolute best for, for someone and you do it with kindness and with the best intentions and with a good application of the law behind you, then that's all that any of us could ever want. And I would hope that if I ever needed a social worker, that's the social worker that I would get.
0: That's a good way of putting it, my friend, doing it right and just. Because someone has to do this, like I said a couple of times then. If not you, then who? These things need to be done. Sometimes as awful and harrowing as distressing as it may be, children cannot live with their parents. We know that parents and carers do heinous things to children. Simply go onto the pages of mysocialworknews.com, check out the website, check out the articles that we have to write on almost a weekly basis. Parents killing children, parents killing babies, children being significantly harmed and abused by those that should have loved them most. In your line of work, adults needn't to be deprived of their liberty because they're such a significant risk to themselves and others and to general members of the public that there is no better option. Times when people simply cannot be cared for in their own home, where their family members and friends have gone above and beyond, but community care is no longer a viable option, no matter how much that person wants to stay and be looked after at home, it simply cannot be done. In these situations, we do have to make decisions on behalf of others and we do have to make decisions that people will not agree with for all that we believe that we all want to come into social work to help people to make the world a better place the fact is quite often we'll be offering people help when they don't want our help they want a different form of help to the narrow remit of the help that we can afford them by the statutory powers and resources available to us in social work which are often quite limited But help we must, we must do the best of the situation we're in and we must make the best of the resources and time and abilities and experience and knowledge that we have. And we have to do that, do we not, Tilly? Because if we don't do it, then who will? And if we don't have people like us and like our listeners who will do this job properly, then we leave the door open for somebody having to do that. And those somebodies that have to do that not doing it with the same skill, compassion, congruence and empathy as we do.
1: Well said. I couldn't say it better myself.
0: Well, listeners, thank you very much for uh, seeing us through on this show. And thank you for pulling me through, Tilly. It is much appreciated. You've seen me through this recording when I have been under the weather. So thank you ever so much. I greatly appreciate your uh, your effort, my friend.
1: No worries. Go and have a a nice hot bath in Epsom salts and an early night and you'll be better soon.
0: Oh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, listeners, as always, thank you, Everett, so much for shooting in. Once again, my apologies if I've been a little under the weather today, but uh, I've got the man flu. Hopefully I'll be back right as rain next week. Until then, it would be really good if you could leave us a review, head over to iTunes or Spotify, anywhere else you get our podcasts from and do leave us a review. We will read that out on next week's show once again if you want to check out the articles we've discussed today you can head over to my socialworknews.com and look at them until we're back next week it's goodbye from me
1: and it's goodbye from me